Grace and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who comforts us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Here again, a little portion of our Old Testament lesson, as it says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. That day is coming and shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. As we progress through the season of Advent, we, we, we live in joyful anticipation of the arrival of Jesus. Advent comes from the Latin word adventus. Uh, the early church chose that word, advent, for this season to mark the arrival of Jesus, and they did it to make a point. See, an adventus was actually a formal welcome ceremony to the Roman emperor as he would arrive in a city. And as he would arrive, there would be certain dignities and honors placed upon him. The people would rejoice in the security and honor bestowed upon that city for having the emperor come and be present with them. And there would be decorations and there would be processions and dignities and games and speeches given in honor of the man who was touted as the savior of Rome. Of course, the early church took exception to that claim and title of Lord and Savior. And they saw a more important advent that should be celebrated with more reverence, more joy, and more hope. Caesar was not their king. Caesar did not bring them joy. Their king was Jesus. And his arrival would be more wonderful more glorious and more blessed than any arrival of any emperor to any city. And as the world celebrates the, the arrivals of earthly kings and earthly things and earthly treasures that all falter, fail, sin, or cause sin, and eventually perish with this world, the church, we celebrate the arrival of King Jesus, who does not fail, who has no sin, and who has died and risen for us. And so today marks the beginning of that second week of Advent. And this week has been given the name Populus Zion. It comes from the beginning of our intro it, which says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. See, this Sunday is all about how and through whom salvation comes. It comes in our Savior, Jesus. The arrival of Jesus should give us joy. To the faithful, the coming of Christ is the greatest Adventist celebration ever held. Because our King has finally arrived. He has come. And that is the good news. Yet, King Jesus is not greeted with joy by everyone. There are still those who worship and endure the kings of this world. And while Christians understand that this world will end, there are those who find that fact to be offensive. 
Perhaps rightly so, the last day will be the day when they see everything they fear, they love, and they trust thrown into eternal fire. Their kings, their gods, and their vanity will be exposed for what they are, empty and worthless idols. And this is what our text reminds us of this morning, the contrast between the righteous on God's right hand and the unrighteous. As Christ comes on the last day, these two will have very different reactions at his arrival. God clearly says that the wicked will be cut down and consumed with fire. They will be tread under the feet of God's righteous ones. But the righteous who have faith in Jesus will greet that day as the first dawn of spring. God says that they will, those who have faith in Jesus will leap like calves from a stall. See, all the cold darkness that we have been sheltered in from and sheltered from will give way to the dawn of God's righteousness that is found in Christ Jesus alone. We have that image of a calf bursting out of a stall, right? Um, it, it's an image of pure excitement and newness. As you think about winter-born calves that are often confined to the stall for the duration of the cold winter months, but when that first warm day comes, what happens? The stall door opens and they leap out of that dark and smelly shed to enjoy the open fields and green grass. Of course, this is such a striking image because it's so foreign to how things are for us right now. See, we live in a world that runs on unrighteousness. The world is consumed in the darkness of sin. It's really hard to imagine life without being tainted by the darkness of sin. The reality that we experience today is nothing like what will be on the day of the Lord's coming. Today, for a while, we have been made subjects to the wicked masters of the world. We live in the earthly kingdoms that are consumed with earthly pursuits. And more often than not, these earthly pursuits are pure evil. We often happen to live in a time when our earthly authorities need our approval for their evil desires, and so they feed into our evil desires to achieve their own. You see, we live in a fallen world, and all the aims of this fallen world are evil from top to bottom. And so we live in a world where desiring the righteousness of God is considered evil because it interferes with the world's desire to achieve its own wicked gains. And so the Christian who rejoices in the righteousness of Christ, they're offensive. They're evil. They're wicked. It's offensive to the world that a person should repent and believe in the gospel of forgiveness. It is offensive to the world that a person should desire to live in accordance with God's world, God's will. It is offensive because the world has rejected righteousness. That's what Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians. He says, With all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth, but have pleasure in unrighteousness. And so they reject God for their idols. They delude themselves to the point that God hands them over to their delusions. 
And to think about this, a deluded life is a life that is dedicated to something that is not true. And as we look at the world, that's what the world delights in. It's hard even to know what is true as we navigate things in this world. Everyone's so confused. A man can be a woman. It's considered wise and compassionate to provide gender-changing surgeries on children. Marriage can be redefined to suit whatever perversions we desire. And the decision on whether or not an unborn child is a living human being is subject to state legislatures, ballot measures, or even whether or not the mother wants to give birth to him. Husbands and wives do not honor and love each other as they should. Parents, especially fathers, are considered worthless and stupid. And of course, it often boils down to money. More money, people believe, will solve their problems. See, we live in a deluded world, and the ultimate delusion is this. It's the denial that we are sinners in need of a Savior. See, people believe their goodness can outweigh their badness, or that there is no such thing as badness in human beings. And so they strive to justify themselves in any way possible and think that is what makes them righteous and good. And they tout that righteousness before the world. And above all, people think that they can fill the role of God himself in their lives. They can find their own saviors. They can be their own saviors. They can be their own lords. And they can produce their own joy and relief from this present darkness. Paul describes this in Romans. He says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. And they are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. There's gossips and slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And what is produced from all this but sadness? People have become, devo have become devoted to things that are ruining them destroying them, heart and soul. They rejoice in those things that break their bodies and condemn their souls. They cannot face how miserable that they are, and so what do they do? Other than repent and believe in the gospel, well, human beings seek to numb themselves. Their vanity doesn't fulfill them, so what do they think will help them? More vanity. More TV, more alcohol, more material goods, more useless hedonism. Why do you think drug problems, drugs are constantly a problem in this world? Why do people engage in habits that ruin their lives? Why do people keep on doing the same things that are destroying them? They are deluded. They are devoted to lies. They think that Caesar is their benevolent king. And because of this, they hate Christ and all who bear his name. And so often, true Christians are despised in this world because of it. Those who belong to the light of Christ must endure the darkness of this dying world. And to be honest, it's hard not to grow depressed. As we look at the world and how far it is from God and how much it despises Christ, it's hard not to feel hopeless. 
Hopeless for what transpires around us every day. Hopeless for what we read in the news. Hopeless for those who will not heed the truth and believe in the gospel. Hopeless for all the times that we have gone along with the world and never even noticed that we're doing it. This really is the danger. The danger is not that the world is evil and we're good. The danger is that we succumb to the world's hopelessness. As that hopelessness drives the world into its vanity and materialism, so often we see Christians take the same approach. If we can't beat them, join them. So often Christians dive headlong into the ways, into the beliefs, into the hopes, into the comforts of this world without ever even thinking it through. A case for this point can be seen how we choose to observe Advent. We live through this month of December. How much of the season is consumed with simply buying and selling? What are we going to eat? What am I going to get? What trinkets am I going to give away? How often do we judge whether or not our Christmas and our holiday season was good or bad based on what we ate and what we got? Advent has become a source, a season at least, of material hedonism. And it seems... All that we hope for is wrapped up and put under a tree, stuffed in a socking, or shoved down our gullets. That's what the world looks forward to this time of year. It's all about what can gratify my desires. And these things are hollow and shallow. Yet there's nothing hollow or shallow about the arrival of Jesus. It is either the most joyful or the most terrifying thing that a person can see. To meet Jesus is to meet God. That's why Malachi reminds the people of the Old Testament to remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before that great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so, if you think about the children of God in the Old Testament, they were living in anticipation of their coming Messiah. And what were they to do? They were to remember the will of their God. They were to live in repentance and faith. And God even promises that he would send one to help them in this as the Messiah was coming, that he would send his Elijah to come to earth to call their minds to the law of God, and he was also going to call them out of their sin to make their hearts ready for the coming of their Savior. He sends John the Baptist to do this job, and they were to cast off their work of darkness and to dwell in the light of faith in the one who comes to forgive sinners. If we remember and think about the preaching of John the Baptist, that's what he does. He calls men and women out from their sin. He's specific, he's particular, but he does not hesitate when Jesus comes to point and say, Behold, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That king, that advent, it comes. Jesus arrives. The king enters into his kingdom. He's born in Bethlehem. He lives in perfect righteousness. He's free from the delusions of fallen man. There's no sin in him. Yet, he dies for sinners. He has died for weak and fallen human beings like you and me. He has died for the ones who are so easily duped by the rulers of this wicked world into finding hope in its vanity. 
He died for those who have contented themselves with living in darkness. He dies for those who often fail to live lives of preparation for his arrival. He dies for the weak. He dies for the sinful. He dies for the poor and the blind. But he does not stay dead. He rises on the third day so that we might know him and believe that we have been justified. And he is now ascended to his throne in heaven, ruling over all creation for the sake of his Christians, and he has promised that he will return. And so, Christ has come. His advent has taken place. And we will meet Jesus. Just as he came to be our Savior, he's going to come again to be our judge. And so, we're beckoned in these readings to be ready. We must be prepared for the advent of King Jesus. We must stand ready for his arrival, because it will be a day of great terror for the unbelieving world. And that is because their delusions will be revealed for the lies that they are, and their hope in the things of this world will be shattered because of the utter destruction that comes upon them. Jesus says there will be people fainting with fear and foreboding, of what's happening in the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with great power and glory. The heavens and the earth will be shaken and they will see the King and they will weep and faint out of fear. Yet Jesus also says that this is not the case for his Christians. As he goes on, he says, Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. See, for the unbeliever, the end of this world is the end of all of their hope. It's the end of all of their comfort. All those things that they clinged to in this life will come to an end. For the Christian, though, the end of this world is the end of our sorrow. We will no longer need to mourn over this world. We will no longer need to live in confusion over its fallen state. It will end. Suffering will end. Our contention with sin will end. Our weakness and confusion will end. Our mourning over the miserable state of this world will end. It ends with the arrival of Jesus. It will end with the one who has made all things right. And as the delusions of this world are revealed for the lies that they are, the truth that we have by faith in Jesus Christ will be vindicated. It will stand immutable, imperishable, Forever, we must stand firm and keep watch, lest we ourselves fall into the delusions of this world. Because these delusions will perish along with everything else, we must not cling to the false hopes lest we are destroyed by them. No, we cling to Jesus. We cling to everything he has promised us. As Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. We must be watchful, not just over how bad the world is, but we must be watchful over our own hearts. As Jesus says, you watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the old earth. But stay awake at all times. 
praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And so we must be mindful of our own sinfulness. We must understand that as we live in this world, we are no better than those sinners who cling to their delusions. The only thing that separates us from them is the grace of God. It is nothing in us. It has everything to do with what has been given to us by the mercy of God. And so we must never look at the world with all of its sin and evil and think, that will never be me. I could never sink that low. It's not possible. I'm not a sinner like the rest of that. I'm not as bad as them. It is possible. Keep watch. Pray. Live by faith in Christ. As we are prepared by living by faith in Jesus. We are made ready by standing in prayerful repentance. As we acknowledge our sins before God, we don't make a case for ourselves. We don't strive to call our evil good. No, we simply confess. We confess that we have sinned against God in thought, word, and deed. And we rest entirely on the mercy of Jesus. We do not cling to this world's thinking that it can provide any hope or consolation for sinners. It's Jesus. It's Jesus, Jesus, and only Jesus. And when he arrives, it will be his work that we appeal to as we stand before his judgment seat. Those are the only works that save us. We cannot say, oh yeah, I did that, but look at this, this was good. There will be no bargaining. There will be no courtroom procedure. There will be no small talk. It will be, I'm a sinner. Christ has died for me. And for his sake, you have forgiven me, dear Lord. Christ's works will spare us. They spare us from the fire of his judgment, and they cause us to rejoice as the sun of his righteousness dawns upon us. And we will be healed from the wickedness of this world. We will find relief from futility and vanity. The sorrow we feel for its continual fall into wickedness, that, that's put to an end. It's short. It will because we'll be with Jesus. The righteous one will stand before us in all of his glory and declare that we are of him and he is in us. And that he has been the truth for as long as we have known him. And so... We are awaiting his second advent. And as we await his second arrival, we know he's never far from us. He's with his church. He's never distant from you, his dear Christians. The word that never passes away, that is continually proclaimed for the good of those who believe. The forgiveness of sins that we desperately need will always be applied to those who believe in it. God will continually make you righteous. He will continually purify you for the last day as he washes you in his water and word. And in this, he purifies our hearts. In this, he guards you as his own precious treasure. Keeping watch means that we attend to the word of life. We listen to it. We believe in what it says about us. We receive what God promises for us.
That's how we're made ready for the day of the Lord. This is how God will distinguish us for those, but, uh, from those who will be thrown into the fire. This is how God makes us righteous for the day of judgment. It's the word of Jesus applied to you. It's the word of Jesus that warns us against all the futile delusions of the world. This word gives you Jesus. It gives you Christ. It makes you holy. It preserves us in the faith. So keep watch. As you prepare for the Lord's coming, cling to his word. And as you cling to his word, you will cling to Christ. Let us pray. Almighty God, guard our hearts so that we do not fall into the darkness of this world. Never allow the vain delusions of this world to distract us from your arrival, but cause us to live in sober preparation for the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And allow your word to be heard so that the place that we place our hope in Jesus Christ alone. In the name of Jesus, amen.